Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Gold about her book, Perpetua, Athlete of God. Barbara, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yes, I've been a classics professor my entire career. I I got my uh, degrees in classics uh, from University of Michigan, University of North Carolina, and I have taught all around the country, uh, University of California, University of Virginia, University of Texas. And uh, I ended up teaching um, for the last uh, 29 years at Hamilton College in upstate New York, where my husband and I were both in the same department in classics. Um, I work on mostly Latin, but some Greek. I've published articles in all kinds of literary patronage, how writers in ancient Greece and Rome uh, were able to sustain themselves, how they got paid. Um, so my first books were on literary, pa- literary and artistic patronage. Um, and then I started getting interested in um, feminist studies. I've done a lot of that in the past oh, 20 or 25 years. So a lot of my work now is centered on Roman literature, uh, satire, um, comedy, and Roman poetry, but from a feminist point of view. And uh, then I also started getting interested more recently in the development of early Christianity, also from a feminist point of view. And that's what led me into Perpetua. Um, Oxford University Press has been publishing a series on women in the ancient world, on different important women, and uh, they asked me to do one on Perpetua. So that's how my book evolved. I was interested in seeing how early Christianity developed, but I also wanted to look at one particular person's development within the wider framework of early Christianity. And it's very rare that we have a text like Perpetua's. Perpetua was an early martyr, and she left us a diary or a narrative that she wrote, apparently, while she was in prison waiting to be martyred. And it's very rare that we have such a text, and exceedingly rare that we have such a text from a woman, the hand of a woman. So I've always been interested in Perpetua. I've taught her a lot. I teach medieval Latin. And uh, I always include Perpetua in that, although she's a little bit early to be called medieval. But um, I include her text. The students really like it. And um, it's such an interesting text to read. So that's why I started working on Perpetua, because I wanted I kind of used her as a handle to get into what was happening in the very early days of Christianity. She died in 203 CE. So she was one of the very earliest of the Christian martyrs. And that's uh, how I got to where I am right now. Uh, I I must confess, you you make the project sound a lot more straightforward than you do in the book, because in your book, you really uh, make it clear just how challenging it is to get a sense of Perpetua's life about how we do have the diary for her. But as you explain, there's so much that is not in there that we then have to go and try to reconstruct in order to understand what exactly her life was like surrounding the events that are that she records in it. Yes, we don't really know very much about Perpetua herself. When I first started the book project, uh, Oxford wanted me to call it uh, a biography, and I know that's what you and I are talking about. And I said, I really can't call it a biography because we don't know enough about her actual life to make it into a straight, uh, what I would regard as a straightforward biography. And I said, it will have to be an exploration of what people have said about her, because that's mainly what we know, what other people have said about her. 
what we know of her life is contained in one short paragraph of the narrative that was written by and about her. Uh, The narrative is in 21 sections, and she, we think, wrote the middle part of it from sections 3 to 10, but the other parts of it were written by an editor or a confessor, and we don't have any idea who that was. So somebody wrote the first two sections of it in which we get introduced to her and her family and what she was like. And then the end of it, which is her martyrdom, which of course she couldn't have written because she died, was also written by probably the same editor, but we really don't know who that person was. So a lot of the text wasn't written by her, but it was about her. And uh, yes, it's not a straightforward biography because there are so many complexities in trying to figure out Perpetua's life. Uh, What we know about her is only what is said in section two of of her work, which is called um, in Latin, the Passio, translates into passion in English. And that just a a passion of a saint means the martyrdom of a saint. So there are many passions out there of different saints. This is the passion of Perpetua and her fellow female martyr, Felicity or Felicitas, as she's known in Latin. So there were two women in her group and there were four men. Um, but the the feast day on the Catholic calendar is known only for Perpetua and Felicitas, not for the men. And the, the feast day is still there on the Catholic calendar on March 7th. So what we know about her is... is uh, very slim indeed the details we the the editor says that she was well born that she was educated in the manner of a well born person and that she was mar- well married married in in the way a a highly placed person would be so we think that Perpetua herself was probably from a fairly highly placed family. She was Roman, but her family had lived in Carthage for many years. So she was from North Africa, which also makes her very interesting because that was one of the hot spots of the, the, the development of Christianity during that period in North Africa. So a lot of my book goes into the background of what was happening in North Africa in that period? What were the Christians doing? What were the pagans doing? She was living in a sort of uh, a, a great bubbling metropolitan area with people who were Roman, people who were Greek. Some of them spoke Greek, people who were native Libyans, native Punic Um there were all kinds of people who lived there and spoke different languages. And we're not even sure what language or languages Perpetua's family spoke. Um, Her text is written in Latin, although there is a Greek manuscript of it. But in one place in the text, it says that Perpetua was speaking Greek. So she may have been speaking Greek as well. We just don't know. We know that she had a family, um, very close to her father. Her father appears a lot in her narrative. She talks about him. So a father, a mother. Her father was probably, we think, um, a, an, a, a village official or a town official. So he was probably highly placed. Um, she had an aunt that she mentions, and she had at least three brothers. One of her brothers died when he was quite young, when he was seven, of a, of a facial cancer. And she tries to uh, pray for him and intercede with him. She has two visions about him in which he's suffering. So she has one brother that died when he was young. She has another brother who is also a Christian and probably a third brother who wasn't a Christian. Her family seems to be split between those who were Christian and those who weren't. Her father is definitely not Christian. And he does not understand why his daughter is giving up everything that she has to martyr herself. She's a young woman. She's probably 21 years old and she has a nursing son. She has a young baby that she has with her in prison for a while. 
And finally, she's forced to give him up to her parents because she just can't have him in the horrible conditions in the prison that she's in. So her father keeps coming to visit her in the prison and trying to talk her out of doing what she's doing because he just doesn't understand it. He's not a Christian. So he doesn't, nobody quite understands in this period why Christians were doing what they were doing. They don't understand the idea that you could be so fixed on a goal that you would be willing to die for what you believe. They, the Romans didn't understand this. The Romans didn't really care if you were a Christian or not, as long as you also worshipped their gods. So you had to agree to sacrifice to the emperor and to the Roman gods, and then you could go about your business and be whatever else you wanted to be. But they didn't understand Christians because Christians said, no, we're monotheistic. We have one God. We will not sacrifice to the emperor. We will not sacrifice to your gods. And that's why a lot of them were put to death in the early period. And, and that takes us to the text, which is so inextricably intertwined with what we know about uh, Perpetua, and that's the, the, the Passio. And I was wondering if you could perhaps take us a, a bit into what makes it so significant, uh, both not, not just for understanding her life, but as a text itself, given what you've just described, because as you explain, it's not just important as a source for her life, but it's important in its own right in terms of the faith of the times, and as you go on to explain in the book, in Christian literature more broadly. Right. Well, the, the first thing that, that we should note is that the text is remarkable for a couple of reasons at the outset. One is that she is the first Christian woman to write in her own name before the fourth century. She's it. And she is the only author of a first-person account of a Christian woman's experience. She is what we have. So uh, we can talk about this a little bit later if you want, but um, some people feel that she is a fictionalized character, that she didn't really exist at all as, a, as an actual martyr and an actual person. Um, I've chosen, I thought about this a lot when I wrote the book, um, because it's a real argument. And I choose to believe that she is a real person. But I think that the text that we have isn't necessarily based on an actual historical experience. It's embroidered. And as you said, a lot of her importance comes because of the effect that she had on later martyrdom accounts and later sources. A lot of the, the martyr texts after her, and almost all of them came after her, she was one of the first. We know of two groups of martyrs in the 170s and 180 CE. And then she she and her group die in 203. So she was in a very, very early period of Christianity. There were no churches yet. They met in people's houses. Uh, the church did not have a hierarchy yet. It had not been taken over really by a male hierarchy yet. They didn't. They had people called bishops and presbyters, um, but it wasn't like it was another, say, 100 years later. So she she was one of the first, and a, a lot of the martyr accounts that we have are pretty heavily based on Perpetua's narrative. So it was a very influential narrative. So that's a both a religious reason why she's important, but also a literary reason why she's important. And then later authors talk about her all the time. Her her cult was very, very important. And on the feast day on March 7th, every year, her narrative was read in church as part of the liturgy. So it came to people, even people who wouldn't read it or couldn't read it, they would have heard it in church. So everybody knew about her cult. Her cult was important and it was popular and it was sustained over a long period of time. Um, later writers took, took up her story and changed it a lot, but they incorporated it into their church writings and into martyrologies and into all kinds of different writings. So St. Augustine is one of the, the first people to do this. Um, 
in he was also from from Africa, from North Africa, from Hippo, which was just to the to the west of of what is now Tunisia, what was then Carthage. Um, so the later writers like St. Augustine and another bishop of Carthage right after him um, use her story all the time. And then you go on from there into writers not, and this is not only in Africa. These are um, writings that we have from um, Spain, from England, from Italy, from all over the place. Um, there's a ninth century writer called Notger, who was the librarian at a very famous monastery, St. Gall, which has the earliest of the Perpetua manuscripts, ninth century. And he wrote a poem about her in which he kind of compares her to, um, he, he embeds her in the story of Eve and Mary. And he says, if a woman wants to be chaste and pure and good, that she has to not be like Eve, but be more like Mary. So he uses the perpetuous story to tell his story. In the, this is in the ninth century. And lots of other writers are talking about her throughout. And then there's somebody in the 13th century who's a Dominican that writes uh, something called the Golden Legends, which is a compilation of about 200 different martyr stories. And Perpetua is one of them. And it was very, very popular. We have something like 800 manuscripts of the Golden Legend. So her story goes on from the time she was martyred in 203, uh, well into at least the time of, of Jacob du de, de Virigine, which who wrote the Golden Legend um, in the 13th century. We know that that was still being read in the 15th century. One of the most fascinating parts of your book is you talk about how she is depicted in the Passio from a gendered perspective. And I, I thought this was very interesting because uh, I, I, I'm not very, I wasn't very familiar with her life before I read it, but I kept thinking about other times in history where uh, you know, women have in, in, in various uh, events and narratives have often had, you know, that, you know, the blurring of gendered lines. I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon how that, gender depiction in uh, the Passio is, uh, you know, set up and, and, and what that might say about, you know, her image and, 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 and why this was done and what, what that reveals about her. Yes. Um, she is uh, in, in one of her four visions, the, the, the part that she presumably wrote of the Passio um, is comprised mainly of four visions that she had. The first vision is kind of like Jacob's ladder in the Bible. She climbs the ladder, she steps on the head of a serpent, she gets up to the top and she sees a figure who is appears to be like God and she takes something that that appears to be like the Eucharist. In the second and third visions, those are about Dinocrates, her little brother that died, where she tries to intercede with him and and try to get help for his suffering. The fourth vision, which is the one that everybody reads and everybody knows about, who reads Perpetua at all, is the famous vision of, um, she wrote it the night before they were to go march into the amphitheater in Carthage where she died. And she had a vision and the vision was that the deacon comes to the prison and gets her and takes her to the amphitheater. And she enters the amphitheater and there's a huge crowd of people and they're all yelling. And she gets in there and she expects she has been sentenced to die at the hands of beasts, ad bestias in Latin. And so she expects a beast to come out and attack her. But instead, what happens is that she sees a very large Egyptian man who is going to be her opponent, and she compares him to the devil. And so she gets ready to do a, a sort of wrestling match with him. It's called in, in Greek and in Latin a pankration, which means a sort of no holes bar you could do anything to your opponent. You can kick them, you can pummel them, you can throw them up in the air, you can punch them. 
So she gets. It sounds like an ancient version and, of uh, MMA. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So she gets ready, and he gets ready. Um, their helpers come out, and and as if they were athletes, they are uh, oiled up. They the olive oil is put on them, and they roll around in the dust in the amphitheater. And um, she, it says in the middle of this, is stripped naked. And then it says, and then I became a man or I became male. And the Latin there is really interesting because the Latin there is facta sum masculus. So what happens there is um, if, if anybody listening to this knows Latin, um, Latin has different endings on it, depending upon what gender you're talking about. So if you have an A ending on the end, like you do with facta, it's a feminine ending. So she says, I, I was stripped, I became male. And the facta sum indicates that she was female, at least for the time of that verb. But then masculus, the word that she uses for male, all of a sudden she's male. So she's in the process of switching there from being female to male. And she kind of goes back and forth. The endings on, on the verbs and, well, the, the adjectives and, and, the, and the, uh, the verb endings um, indicate that sometimes that she's male and sometimes she's female. And presumably, while she's fighting with the Egyptian, she's male. But then at the end of this passage, the, the, the person who's running the, the match, um, the, the, the gladiatorial person who's running the match, comes over and says to her, daughter, Philia, daughter, you've won the prize. So all of a sudden there, she goes back to being the woman. So just the gender in Latin itself tells you that she goes back and forth between being a male and a female. But also her, all of her qualities and her characteristics show her not to be a typical woman. She's controlling. She's a leader of her group. She stands up to all the men when they try to get her to do things. She stands up to her father again and again and again when he comes and begs her not to be a martyr. She stands up to the people who try to make her and Felicity, her the other female martyr, they try to make them wear the robes of Roman gods. And she says, no, we won't do this. You promised we wouldn't have to do this if we went willingly. So they take her out again and they they dress them differently. She stands up to the guards in the prison and says that their conditions are terrible and they need to be in better conditions. And she actually ends up converting some of the guards in the prison to Christianity. So again and again, she stands up to the men. And when she goes on trial, there's a Roman governor named Hilarianus that puts her on trial. and. It, as is typical of these trials of Christians, the, the governor asks, are you a Christian? And she says, yes, I am a Christian. And that's enough to get you sentenced to death. And she stands up to him as well. So again and again, she stands up to men. She shows qualities that are much more characteristic of males than females. And she acts like a man. In, in every way, she's the oddest thing is about her baby. She's willing, she's more willing to die for her cause than she is to continue to be the mother of her baby. And this is something that bothers a lot of people who read her narrative, and it always bothers my students. How can she do this? How can she's such a terrible mother? How can she give up her baby? And I say, well, have you ever been so committed to a cause that you would be willing to do something like that? And it's obvious that my students know they haven't, but the Christ, that's how committed she was. That's how committed the Christians were to their cause. So she's compared in, in this vision, in the fourth vision to an athlete. And that's why my book is called Perpetua Athlete of God. There's a Christian writer who was her contemporary and was North African, named Tertullian. 
And he writes a lot of works. He wrote one work called To the Martyrs, in which he gives um, advice to people who are thinking about becoming martyrs or might want to become martyrs. And he compares them to athletes all the time. He says, you have to be like an athlete because you have to know how to discipline yourself and you have to work really hard at getting yourself in the kind of shape that you'll need to be in to endure what you're going to have to endure when they send you into the amphitheater, particularly if they send you in against the beasts. So they're, the, the martyrs are very often spoken of in terms like that, comparing them to sometimes gladiators, sometimes athletes, people who have to be strong and vigorous and disciplined in order to endure what they have to endure. So the, the gendering of Perpetua is especially important in this narrative because you see her becoming more and more masculine in her behavior as time goes on. And at the end, when she's no longer writing, when the editor is writing, he, I'm assuming it's a he, changes her as if he doesn't like what she's turned into and can't cope with the fact that she's so masculine in her behavior. When she's when the animal finally does come out to kill her and Felicity, and the animal is a wild cow, which is unusual. Normally, they would have used lions or bears or wild boars. But in this case, they appear to have picked a wild cow to attack Perpetua to make fun of the fact that she was a woman, perhaps. So when the cow comes out, knocks her down, She's momentarily stunned, and then she gets up, and she notices that the the cow has torn the tunic that she's wearing. So she makes haste to take the tunic and cover herself up because she's very modest, and she doesn't want her the side of her legs sticking out. She doesn't want to be exposed. And then she also notices that her hair is down, and so she puts it up. And this doesn't strike the right note for Perpetua, not the Perpetua that we saw in the part that she, of the narrative that she wrote. This seems to be a, a modest Perpetua, a very different kind of Perpetua. So it's as if the, the editor later said, wait a minute, I have to do something to get her back to being a modest woman again that would be more like a Roman woman. She also gives up her family. When you became a Christian in this period, you pretty much gave up your birth family, your natal family, and you took on a new family that is your Christian family. And they would call themselves by familial names. So they would call each other sister and brother. Sometimes it's hard to know in the text whether they mean a real brother, a blood brother, or a Christian brother. Like Felicity is pregnant and she has a baby right before they go out to be executed. And it said her baby is given over to a sister. It clearly means a Christian sister. So uh, Perpetua also had to give up her family. She had, including her baby, but also her mother, her father, her brother. Um, And in order to become a a committed Christian and, and join this kind of Christian sect that she had, this group. So, there and and that was not something certainly a good Roman girl would have done. So she upends social conventions. She upends the kinds of ways that women were supposed to behave then. So there's a lot about her that's very masculine in its um, the way it's told, and l- the later church fathers, the, those the men, they were all men, pretty much, who wrote Christian writings from then on, um, go, keep going back to this again and again and again, not necessarily about Perpetua, but about women like Perpetua, who acted like men. And the church fathers couldn't figure out what category to put them in. They couldn't figure out whether they were male or female what was a female who acted like a male? How did you even define them? How did you describe them? Jerome, St. Jerome in the fourth century, 
um, ends up saying that to become male was to take on a, a higher moral status. To become female meant that you became weak and degenerate. So becoming male and female took on more of a, a moral coloring than um, than a, a, a sex or gender coloring. And he said that if if a woman gives up her family, her husband and her family, uh, and prefers Jesus Christ, then she has done what she needs to to become a man. And then eventually, he says, there is, there is no male and female, that everybody is the same in Christianity. You have talked about what we know about Perpetua from the Passio, but you also go to considerable lengths to try to reconstruct the world in which she lived, uh, second century Carthage. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what insights we can gain about her or what we can infer about her from that world in which she uh, lived. Well, we don't know um, a lot about what was going on. We we know that Carthage was a very vibrant city. It was probably the, the second most populous city at that point after Rome. Um, the amphitheater in Carthage held 30,000 people. So it was second only to the Roman Colosseum in how many people it held. So Carthage was a big city. Uh, it's not clear whether Perpetua and her family were from Carthage itself or a smaller town. The Greek manuscript says that they were from a place called the Burbo Minas, which is um, about 40 or 50 miles from Carthage. So they might have been from a smaller village. But she almost definitely was martyred in the amphitheater in Carthage. So Carthage was a very vibrant place. Uh, full of people who were uh, writers and um, uh, the the early Christians um, in in the church there, which was an imp- a very important uh, a part of the early church. Um, writers like Tertullian, um, North African writers. There's a, a, a famous um, Latin writer, Apuleius. He was also um, her contempor- almost her exact contemporary and also from uh, North Africa. So there was a lot going on there. Um, the Roman emperor at the time, Septimius Severus, was actually from Libya. So um, it's, it's not clear whether he and his family could have been around when Perpetua was executed, they were apparently on an extended trip from Rome back in North Africa. And the so-called games that Perpetua and her fellow martyrs were participating in when they were executed um, in Carthage were in honor of the son's birthday, the emperor's son's birthday. His name was Gita. His, uh, I believe it was his 11th birthday. So um, the, it's it's interesting that um, the the person who was emperor at the time that she was executed was also um, from uh, Africa, the the first emperor Roman emperor to be from Africa. So, but it it's not clear to us that Septimius Severus had much to do with what was happening on the ground in these individual parts of the empire. The Roman Empire was huge, and he couldn't possibly have known, I mean, given the lack of communication, he couldn't possibly have known everything that was going on uh, all the time in, in all the parts of the empire. So it was really the local magistrates who took care of things like the trial of Perpetua and her and her fellow martyrs. So th- what we do know is that uh, it, it seems to us that the judicial system was broken down into um, much more localized 
um, governors and and uh, provincial administrators, and that it was certainly not centralized um, from Rome. It's really not clear during this period because it's so early um, where Christianity came from, how it got to North Africa. We don't know whether it came from the east, uh, which is probable or from Rome. It could have flowed from from both directions. Um, We also, it's interesting to read the text and to try to see what the pagans thought of the Christians and what Christians thought of the pagans and how you would even have known if someone was a Christian. You wouldn't have known from looking at them. They didn't really dress differently. But Christians were regarded with great suspicion by the pagans. And of course, pagan is is a terrible term. It's sort of a a large umbrella term that could describe any one of a number of different kinds of people. Um, So it's not, but it's not really clear what someone who was not a Christian how they would have recognized a Christian, what they would have thought about them. We know that. Um, some of the groups of Christians that were uh, set upon by their fellow citizens, not so much in Carthage, but in other places, this group of Christians that were executed in the 170s in in Gaul, in France, um, that happened because the other citizens um, came upon them and... and um, wanted them arrested and, and beat them up. And so I think pagans were very suspicious often of the Christians because the Christians were kept to themselves. They read particular religious texts that the pagans didn't know about. They met separately and were regarded as a kind of secret sect. So in many ways, the pagans would have, I think, held them suspect for for all those reasons. But it's not really clear how any kind of normal person living in Carthage who wasn't a Christian would have regarded somebody who lived near them who was a Christian. If If the Christian didn't make a big deal out of being Christian, then you would have walked by them and never known that they were. And some Christians were more doctrinaire than others. Not everybody was like Perpetua. Not everybody was willing to get arrested and um, and insist, I am a Christian, and be executed and be taken away from your family and your baby. So there was a whole range of people who were Christians, too. Some Christians uh, lost heart when they were brought to trial and they didn't admit to being Christians. They said, no, I'm not a Christian. And then they were let go. And not every Christian was arrested either. We don't even know why Perpetua's group was arrested because there were other Christians who were coming in and out of prison to visit them who were not arrested. So we really don't know enough about the system in Carthage in this period to know why some people were arrested and why some other people were not arrested. But we do know that there were people who were sort of scorned by their fellow Christians because they weren't Christian enough. They weren't committed enough to go the whole way, the way Perpetua and her group were. And I think that you know, speaks to how exceptional her uh, uh, her experiences were. Obviously, they were to, to have been written down, you know, suggests that they were outside the norm. And as you've already alluded to, they, they have this legacy in Christian literature that extends centuries. I mean, it, it, the very fact that this work survived is, is a testament to that. I was wondering if you could perhaps talk uh, a bit about the legacy of Perpetua's life and, uh, and and perhaps elaborate a bit upon some of the forms that the narrative depiction of this took over the in the centuries that followed. Um, well, the the forms that her her narrative took were, um, I think we talked a bit about this before. Um, it varied 
depending upon who it was that was writing it, but almost from the beginning, everybody who took over her story and and tried to write it changed it. There were there were groups of texts called Octa that were written quite shortly after her text that were kind of abbreviated versions of the Passio. But they change Perpetua and Felicity quite a lot. They do things like add a husband. One odd piece of Perpetua's story is that there's no mention of a husband in it. And everyone wonders, okay, she was. it says she was married in Section 2, and we know she had a nursing baby who was quite young. So why? where was her husband, and why is he never mentioned? He's just simply not mentioned in her narrative at all. In, in Section 2, where it runs through who her family members were, no mention of a husband. Um, there could be a number of reasons for this. Uh, everyone has speculated wildly, as they have about everything to do with Perpetua. Um, and, you know, he might have been on a trip. And if you went on a trip, you had no communication back home, so you wouldn't have even known what was going on. Uh, I mean, there he could have died. But you'd think that if that were the case, that it would have, the text would mention this somehow. And it doesn't. So my supposition about this is that Perpetua um, is one of those people that was married, then for some reason or another, decided to become a Christian. We don't know how that happened. How, how would she have been attracted to Christianity and to this group of people when her, most of her a lot of family was not Christian? Some of them probably were, but some were not. Um, and what would happen then to her husband if she was married at the time? A lot of the, the later people, the ascetic women who followed Perpetua, say, uh, in the next hundred years after her, um, had been married, but they gave up their husbands because they decided to become celibate. If their husbands went along with their celibacy, then they could remain in a platonic marriage, but there would be no sexual acts. Um, some of this is brought up in related texts in the period. And there's a whole bunch of different genres of literature that center around the same kinds of stories, and many of them around these strong women. There's the apocryphal acts, which which are centered on an apostle who converts a woman who normally is married, and usually the woman leaves her husband. So that might be an explanation for what happened with Perpetua's husband. So there are the apocryphal acts. There's something called the Greek novel. Um, and these Greek novels also, they center around couples, but the couples are usually separated by some horrible circumstance, or one of them is abducted by pirates, and in the end, they usually get back together again. So there, there are a number of different kinds of narratives and kinds of stories and kinds of genres that are all pretty much in this period, in the same about 100-year period, in the starting in the second century CE and going into the third century CE that all share the same kinds of characteristics. And they all center around these vibrant, interesting female characters who have a lot of character and who act in a way that many women in that period would not have been expected to act in. So, and it's really not clear like which of these genres came before which. So there's a lot of speculation about what influenced what. But the Perpetua character is a lot like some of the characters in these other genres, in the Greek novel and in the apocryphal acts. The apocryphal acts are biblical books, but they're not part of the, the biblical canon. You wouldn't find them in your normal Bible. 
they're the acts of John, Peter, Paul, Thomas, and Andrew. Just to be clear, that the apocrypha that was not formally established by the point that Perpetua died. She that, that I think that was was that to, uh, still to come. The the formal settling as to the uh, the the what was canon, what was not. Uh, well, yes, and and but the apocryphal acts are not the apocrypha. Those are two different things. Oh, okay. Sorry, <laughs> but so, but um, but the yeah, the apocryphal acts. I mean, no, that that was not clearly established then. But but these would not now be part of the canonical Bible, the apocryphal acts. But they they're really interesting because they all center around an apostle, like say Paul. And the, the, the apostle attracts the interest of usually a, uh, a highly placed woman who is married. And she, there, there's a kind of an erotic element in them, too, as there is sometimes in Perpetua. And she becomes obsessed, the woman, with the apostle. And she follows him around, and she usually wants to get rid of her husband. And in some cases, the husbands are more understanding, and in other cases, they're less understanding. Um, they can't figure out what they've done wrong. They can't figure out, you know, they say, I've treated you so well. Why are you behaving like this? Why won't you have sex with me anymore? And um, they, they usually don't end well for the apostle. The apostle usually ends up dying at the end of it because the husband takes out after the apostle. So, there, there are all these kind of elements that um, you see in the perpetuous story that also appear in the apocryphal acts and in the Greek novel and, and in the gospels too, sometimes. And it's not clear what the dating of all of these is, but they're all roughly in the same period. So they're all kind of related to each other. And they all develop the stories, interestingly, of these women who aren't really behaving like women are supposed to be behaving anymore. They're behaving like men. So the, the, we, we keep coming back to the gendering of it. The, the gender roles are perfectly clear, but people aren't abiding by them anymore. Gender is becoming much more fluid. And the, the most, there's, a, there's a deep recognition that when you talk about a woman behaving like a woman, it's not quite clear what you mean anymore. That women can behave like men now, but what does that mean? And and this is what gets the 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 church fathers that gets their knickers in a twist because they they can't figure out what to call these women. There's a a a, a, a writer named Palladius who refers to a woman who's acting more like a man and and Palladius says um that that the woman was acting um more like a man than a woman should so they've kind of got these women who are acting like men that is who are taking on male characteristics like perpetua they're leaders they're dominant they're in control they know their own minds they're not following the social norms so they, they they can't figure out what to do with women like that. It's like there's a sliding scale between being a complete woman, according to the standards at the time, and being a complete man. And then there's something in the middle, and the women are sort of sliding back and forth on the scale. And it's interesting to think about how at the you know end of the Passio that there's, um, as, you were, as you've already mentioned, how there's almost this effort to you know, reconfine Perpetua back into that box of what's expected of a woman at the time. Yeah, and and then the later writers do that too. So there's, you know, at the at the end of my book, I talk about the the misreadings about her and the um, all all of the different ways that people have tried to take a character like Perpetua and turn her into something that makes more sense to the the norms of their own times. So that's what um, the, the Octa do, these shortened versions, these abbreviated versions of the 
um, of the patio, they do things like insert a husband, which makes the women make more sense because they're supposed to have a husband. And um, they will, for example, downplay uh, what happens to her when she fights with the Egyptian. They downplay her role as an athlete and a gladiator and a woman who is stripped naked and turns into a man. That drops out of a lot of the later accounts of her because it makes people very nervous about about how she's displayed. So what happens in the Akta uh, gets gets continued in all of the later writers that take up her story, like Augustine and the the other uh, bishop, Quodwell Deus, he's called, um, after Augustine, Bishop of Carthage. And then all these later writers that I talk about, um, like Notger in the ninth century and Jacob in the 13th century, that all change her story slightly to bring her into conformity with the way they think women should behave. So the the problem with that is it makes her into this fictionalized character, and that takes us back to the problem of, is she real or is she not? How authentic is this narrative that we have? Is it really based on an actual martyrdom? And was she a real person? Was there a perpetua? Or... Is this is she a fictionalized character that's made up from the get-go? She certainly gets fictionalized later on when people keep changing her and changing her. I was wondering, uh, since we've taken up a lot of your time, if you before we go, if you could uh, tell us what you're working on now. Yeah, what I'm working on now is um, I continue to work on early Christianity because I'm absolutely fascinated by what was going on in that period. But I'm currently writing a book with a colleague of mine who teaches at um, University of Bristol in England, and um, it's quite different. It's called The Guide to Latin Lyric and Elegy, and it's meant to be a sort of general book on Latin poets like Catullus and Horace and Propertius and Ovid. Um, for undergraduate classes, people that might not know enough Latin to read them in Latin, but to whom we'd like to introduce them in a sort of general literature course. So it's it's a, um, a, a Blackwell series that are general guides to different parts of classical literature. So Genevieve and I are, are writing one for uh, Latin lyric and elegy. Right now, so I just finished writing a chapter on the the Roman poet Catullus, who lived in the uh, first century BCE. Oh, it sounds like a great project. So that's project. what I'm doing right now, and I'm also working on an article um, on the Roman word kinitis, which is um, kind of an obscene word that means somebody who, in one way or another, does not behave according to the right norms and standards, like um, men who cross dress, and um, it's got a lot big sexual component to it. So it's a really interesting word, but everybody uses it differently. And I'm working on a use of it in the poet Catullus, where he uses it of a woman, and it's normally used of a man. So I'm trying to figure out what he means there. So I keep going back to sex and gender. It sounds like it's, it's going to be a really interesting article when it's finished. Yeah, I hope so. Well, Barbara Gold, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Thank you.